0: Another Awkward Vacation. Chapter 10 Part 1 Compulsive People Pleaser. I spent four years on this story, repeatedly telling it to myself, whittling it down, and perfecting what I wanted to say. I planned for what you would say and constantly edited with the hope that I could get the best possible reaction with the most precise level of understanding and acceptance. I was now flying to Texas to have this conversation with you, but unlike the other times when I had planned to talk to you before writing the book, this time, I felt entirely at peace with whatever reaction you might have. The book had begun as a medium from which you could better understand me but had since become the tool I had used to better understand myself. This book would now serve as a gift I could give you, a way of introducing you to the man I had become by allowing you to meet the parts of me that I had hidden from everyone for so long. An introduction to a son you had barely met. Of all the possible reactions you might have to discovering my dark side, I hadn't considered that you might deny its existence. Your first reaction was anger, which I had expected, so I immediately initiated plan A. I was able to redirect you and ease your concerns with specific examples and clarification. I had barely gotten through the summary on the back cover of this book when I noticed you digging your heels in, preparing a retort. I could tell you already had a mental image of what you thought was the entirety of the book's contents. Well, I know you're critical of your brother, but before you badmouth him too much, you should know that your mom really did do some of those things. You said, with a stern look on your face, you were always so quick to come to my brother's defense. When I would complain about what he'd say to me or about me, you'd always dismiss it because you assumed the best in him. I didn't enjoy the same luxury. Evidenced by the awkwardness in our vacations, always getting sparked by you presuming the worst in me. I was prepared for this inevitability and wasn't letting Shannon off the hook so easily this time. You and I already had this conversation in my head a thousand times, and it was as if you had memorized your lines from the Plan B script verbatim. I reminded you of how I was as a kid. I would break a rule and then ground myself. You and Mom would find me crying alone in my room and ask me what I was doing. I would confess my minor crimes and then beg for forgiveness. I was such a compulsive people-pleaser that I was always so much harder on myself than anyone else could ever be. When Shannon was mean to me, he was being mean to that little boy who was still very much alive deep within my subconscious. I noticed that the comparison had gotten through to you, and I saw you drop your guard a little. You admitted that my brother was unnecessarily hard on everyone and conceded that he could be rude. Still, you dismissed them both as part of his personality and then suggested our kinship justified his behavior. That's just how he is, Denver. He's still your brother. Obviously, we all have our flaws. I reiterated that, regardless of familial ties, those flaws could have consequences. Given the very nature of our relationship and the age difference, there was a power differential between us. My brother enjoyed his influence over me and often exploited it to his advantage. While I never experienced a major, singular traumatic event at the hands of my brother, his constant humiliation and degradation of my spirit accumulated over time and slowly broke me down. The fact that this was done by my brother, someone I trusted, makes his behavior traumatic and unjustified. My near-pathological codependence fed into his narcissistic personality, our combined disorders mixed in a way that made us both worse for being around each other. For the first time in my life, I finally understood and attempted to explain to you how his actions didn't just hurt my feelings, they had become triggers for me and were complicating my recovery. I confessed that I had been coping with those triggers with drugs and alcohol, and I briefly described how bad it had gotten at times. I also went into detail about how thoughts of suicide plagued my mind when the drugs and alcohol didn't work. I took the time to make it abundantly clear that I did not write this book to establish some sort of innocence in my mother. My mother's actions have done more to damage my self-image and personal relationships than anyone else has. Fears of abandonment, trust issues, feelings of inadequacy, and suicidal ideation and inspiration were all gained from my mother. Even after extending the olive branch as an adult and introducing her to my kids, she again decided to abandon me proving she hadn't grown or ever tried to learn from our collective mistakes. This book should not be confused as an attempt to rectify her wrongs, make excuses for her mistakes, or share in her guilt as our own. My mother only serves as a tragic example of what happens when a family doesn't take the time to communicate with one another and how bad things can get. We must all learn our own lessons, but we can do so after observing each other's mistakes, thus, sharing the burden and growing together. Avoiding these difficult conversations only delays progress and alienates the ones we should be supporting. My mother is an example of what I am afraid to become, and our family's response to it, a pattern I wish to break. I thought you and I had made some real progress in our conversation. I felt like you were finally starting to understand how serious it was, and you were seeing the bigger picture of why I wanted to share it with you. I thought you were beginning to appreciate that I wasn't mad at my brother but that I merely wanted to be released from his grip. I wanted to share my experience so that he wouldn't make the same mistakes with his wife and children. I had learned how his actions affected me, so I thought I could help him and his family grow closer by sharing my understanding. To show him that we all love him but that we don't want to have to work so hard for his approval. It was uncomfortable watching my brother acting so outwardly awful to everyone in an attempt to hide his insecurities. I felt like I had found the cure to his misery in my own self-reflection. I possessed the revelations that could end the suffering, and I thought you were finally starting to understand. I had planned this all out perfectly, and I had thoroughly explained myself. Four years of practice and I had finally gotten through to you, but then you surprised me by putting up an emotional wall I had never encountered from you before. This wall was painted differently on the outside, but it was constructed of the same bricks of repudiation and held together by the quick-drying mortar of defensiveness. Part 2. Iridescent Hue We were driving to the water park, and you were looking forward to floating in the lazy river with the kids. You didn't know I had planned to trap you in the vehicle alone so I could unload years of trauma and recovery on you. You lived an hour from the park, and it had almost been the perfect amount of time to say everything. Daphne had intentionally ridden in a separate car with my stepmom and the kids, and they were waiting for us to join them as we pulled into a parking spot. I continued our conversation. Dad, I'm not sure you realize how depressed I was. Have you ever watched Seven Pounds? With the Fresh Prince? You asked. Yes, that's the one. I was so inspired by it that I decided I would dedicate my life to working dangerous jobs that would help other people, but I'd be risking my life doing them. Did you know that was my motivation for joining the military? You had turned the truck off and were giving me your undivided attention. Your demeanor and attitude had cooled off, and we were now having a discussion that mirrored those I imagined on my long work commutes. You said, Well, no, I thought you just wanted to serve your country that's a pretty extreme level of patriotism to develop out of nowhere, don't get me wrong, I'm so glad I served. I gained the respect and discipline I needed, which changed my life. I saw Daphne unloading the kids from her car, and I recognized that the conversation would need to conclude soon. Nodding my head toward her and the kids, I added, it introduced me to my wife and led me to my career, but I didn't know anything about the military when I joined, and I only joined because the Austin Fire Department wasn't hiring, I'm so glad you met Daphne She has been so good for you I was worried about you, but I didn't know it had gotten so bad You said with a far off look in your eyes Yep, I guess I'm lucky to have been colorblind or I would have had a very different job I laughed No, it wasn't luck You objected I know you're not religious, but I believe things happen for a reason I may not be religious, but I am spiritual, I'm a Jedi, so I also believe things happen for a reason We laughed together to break the uncomfortableness of the conversation. We were in uncharted territory together, and defaulting to a joke is a mechanism I had learned from you. When I was in BASIC, they asked us for our preferred religion. If you were killed in action and your body was unidentifiable, your dog tags would ensure your remains were treated with the correct cultural rituals. I wrote in Jedi as a joke, but as I've gotten older, the internal conflict between altruism and selfishness feels more relevant every day. I was so proud of myself when I got my dog tags, and the government had officially documented that I was a Jedi. Reminding you of that special status helped alleviate a tiny bit of the awkwardness we were steeped in, but we were far from done talking about everything I wanted to share. I needed to relate my addiction and depression to what I wanted from you moving forward. I needed your help getting through to Shannon so I could stop being triggered by him. I had admitted my insecurities, but what was to come next would be the hard part. The alcoholism I continue to struggle with gets triggered when Shannon is critical of me. I get overwhelmed with depressive thoughts when you grow cold with me instead of telling me what's bothering you. I stopped talking as we both noticed my stepmom walking toward the truck. Hold on. You said as you rolled your window down. Hi, are you guys okay? She asked with a friendly smile. Yep. You said with a head nod that did nothing to explain why we were still sitting in the truck. A better option may have been to tell her we were talking and to ask for some time, but we both just sat there with our lame smiles waiting for her to figure it out on her own. Okay, I'm going to head in. Let me know if you need anything. She looked at us both and then turned around to walk away. I felt terrible knowing this was probably coming off as rude again. Here we were, on another family vacation you were paying for, and I was causing trouble. She hadn't done anything wrong and didn't know she was interrupting my life's single most important conversation. She really is a great person, but right now, she was just in the way. I was annoyed with her presence again, and it wasn't fair to her. You rolled up the window and began gathering your things to leave, but I wanted a cleaner conclusion to everything we had discussed. I hadn't shared my journey with you for fun, I had put you through this for a good reason. I told you about my triggers because I wanted to eliminate them. I wanted a little more time with you before gathering with everyone again. You had rented a condo near the park so we could all get dressed and have lunch before heading in. Once we got up to the room, I knew our conversation would be over. I don't know if it was the seriousness of the conversation or if you felt like I painted you in a corner, but the calmness I had cultivated in the situation had been lost in the brief interruption. You now had to choose between continuing to give an already long conversation more attention or taking the hint from your wife that it was time to go. I couldn't let you leave, though. I had worked too hard delicately laying the groundwork toward getting you into the most receptive mood possible. The next phase of my plan was going to require effort on your part, and I started to panic as it felt like I was losing the opportunity to gain your buy-in. My plan was to share my drug abuse, alcoholism, and depression with you. The next phase was to show that you knew about that struggle and didn't do enough to help me through it. I didn't want to blame you for my issues, but I needed to make the correlation that what happened then was happening now. I wanted to know why you hadn't done anything when you knew I was using or when it became obvious I had a drinking problem. If we could identify why you hadn't acted back then, maybe we could deduce that it was for the same reasons you weren't acting now. Why had you let me off so easily after finding pipes in the house? Why didn't you say anything when my car always smelled like weed? I had once drunkenly caught the refrigerator on fire and then covered up the evidence with layers of skateboard magazine photos. I was so drunk when I did it that it ended up being a surprise to both of us when you found it a year later. You were angry when you saw it, but you didn't make me replace it or threaten me with rehab. You unintentionally supported my dependence by allowing it to happen. I needed to show you that you were now unintentionally complicating my recovery by refusing to communicate and not stepping in to support me when you recognize that I am being triggered by my brother. You were either completely unaware of what was happening, or you actively chose to avoid the conversations because you didn't know what to do or say. By providing specific examples, I could prove a behavior pattern that influenced each major event within this book. I didn't want to beat ourselves up for the things we couldn't change but instead recognize that we continued to make the same mistakes. Our avoidant behavior with my mom resulted in losing her to a long, drawn-out, ugly battle. A consistent lack of communication made me feel like I needed to fill a hole in my chest that only deepened with my substance abuse. What do we do now to avoid the consequences that will be paid for by the next generation of our family? What can we work on in ourselves that will pay dividends in how my kids feel about themselves? I had to shift your perception of this being critical of you to me just being an overprotective father wanting to provide a better emotional future for his kids. Once the cause of the avoidance was established, I planned to work with you on finally moving past the blockage, like Pepper in the children's hospital, removing that blockage would lead to excessive diarrhea, but we could finally get better afterward. If you didn't know how to initiate those difficult conversations, I would be willing to stumble through the process awkwardly with you. Kobe didn't hit every shot he took, but he still refused to pass anyway. Unfortunately, that brief disruption had broken your concentration, and now I feared I would lose the opportunity to bridge this gap. I'd have to go in for a showstopper and snatch your attention back. You climbed out of the truck and grabbed your swim bag from the back, and I jumped out to meet you on the other side. I strategically placed myself in your path and asked, Dad, do you remember when you came home from Africa? Did Dan tell you any of the crazy stuff we were doing? No, he didn't say you were doing anything wrong. You walked around me and started walking toward the condo. I spun on my heels and caught up to you. Well, even if he didn't tell you anything, you had to know something was going on when you got back. But we never talk about anything, and we just hope it goes away on its own. I'm trying to tell you that these things don't just disappear if we don't talk about them. I was struggling then like I am now, and I want to break the pattern. In my desperation, the words were coming out less eloquently than I had hoped. You stopped and looked at me. Son, if anyone were ever critical of me, I would be very upset. Your brother, your stepsisters, anyone except you. I would understand if you were critical of me. I know I didn't do a perfect job. I had my head in my butt after the divorce, and I always say that you raised yourself. See, that's such a good example. You say that all the time but it bothers me when you say I raised myself, I really did in some ways, but I needed, you, to raise me, I still need you, when you say that, I feel like you're acknowledging that I was alone without dealing with the consequences it cost. I saw the look of defensiveness on your face, but it was mixed with pain, regret, exhaustion, and helplessness, I talk with you, you can tell me anything, you were walking toward the condo again, a posture that didn't come off as actively listening, Okay, for example, do you remember finding my pipe in the couch when you got back from Africa? You slept beside the trash can all night instead of talking to me about it. It was such an old example, but it represented the most blatant breach of catching me doing drugs and doing nothing to stop it or inquire about how it started. Wow, Denver, that never happened. We had gotten to the elevator that would take us to the room where everyone was waiting before heading to the water park. I laughed, that definitely happened. Nope, I would remember that. Yeah, no kidding, so why don't you? I laughed out of frustration. Your memory wasn't great, but this had to have made an impact on you when it happened. What about when Toad lived with us and we smoked in the bathroom every night? You're going to tell me you never smelled the pot. Denver, you know, if you were really doing heavy drugs. You trailed off and picked up your bags as the elevator doors opened on the top floor. What, what were you going to say? I asked, honestly confused. Maybe, it didn't happen. You said as you started walking down the hallway. I blinked hard and then scoffed. Wait, you think I hallucinated all of it? Yes. Dad, that's not really how that works, dude. I was stunned and hadn't planned how to react to this. Was this denial or did you really have no idea any of this had gone on under your roof? I had brought this up to show you how you had a history of deflection and you had now just hit the deflection grand slam. This was the same old emotional walls you always raised, but with the fancy new paint of fantasy. I wasn't sure if I should move on or spend time trying to convince you that I hadn't hallucinated my entire life away. In my confusion, I had lost the conversation. What was I trying to explain? I had not been hoping to convince you that I had smoked weed in the bathroom in high school. I wanted you to know about the weed in the bathroom because it would help you understand what I was going through back then. If you understood what I had been through, you would realize that I'm still dealing with those unresolved issues. At least, I think it would. What was happening? How had I gotten so lost in where this conversation was supposed to go? As we got to the room where everyone waited for us, it was easier for you to assume I had made this all up and to absolve ourselves from having to work through the discomfort. No one would need to apologize or change their behavior, we could just treat this all as one rather long delirium. This was the same avoidance that has plagued our family since day one, only now it was tinted with the iridescent hue of, hard stuff. The lack of communication that crippled your marriage and separated me from my mom was now mixed with the dismissiveness that makes me dread spending time around my brother. A shared nightmare that will continue to haunt our family every night but one that we will routinely wake up from and pretend never happened as we quietly eat our breakfast together, falsely comforted by the quaint escapism of vacation. Our conversation ended on a semi-positive note, despite the pain I felt for having been rejected in a way I hadn't scripted and not knowing how best to respond. Part of me knew this couldn't be the end of our talk, and you'd have to have so many questions after learning so much more about me. You were only dismissing this conversation because it was time to go. I knew you'd want to hear more. I had told you about my depression, alcoholism, substance abuse, thoughts of suicide, and the contents of the book I had written detailing all of it. The timing was off, and everyone was waiting for us, so I understood your reluctance to continue. It hadn't gone the way I wanted it to, but it had gone better than any other time we had previously attempted." I wanted to see what you would do with the information I had given you, so I didn't bring it up again. I hoped you would ask questions or ask to read the book, but we never approached the subject again. I gave you the tools and all the information you would need to help me, but you let it go. This conversation was supposed to change everything, but it became another example of avoidance. I thought our interaction would write the ending of this book, and it would be a happy ending. As we hugged goodbye and your last chance to ask those questions slipped away, I had to ask myself again what I was trying to accomplish with all of this. I almost stopped writing. I wanted to give up because it hadn't worked. I felt like I had explained myself so thoroughly, but you weren't interested in who I was. I assumed you didn't care. I didn't start writing again until I realized this book was never for you in the first place. This book was for my mind's image of you. The imaginary friend I talked to on my commute to work. This version of you doesn't exist in the real world, so just like talking to myself, this book was only ever meant for me. You would only ever see this book as being critical of you unless you were willing to appreciate the growth potential in our mistakes. As I drove away from your house at the end of our vacation, I saw you put your arm around your wife and I could see tears fill your eyes. You were worried about me and felt guilty that you had let me down as a kid, but you sat silently with those emotions as I left. This book would forever remain a mystery to you. I had written a science fiction novel about drug abuse and family relationships. The process of writing this book has given me insight I didn't have before our last vacation. I promised myself I could be at peace with any reaction you had, but denial wasn't on my list of possibilities and I struggled to accept the outcome. I finally acknowledged in myself that I have an astonishing level of impatience that fuels near-manic levels of concentration. I can write and record songs in a single day. I often ruin paintings because I can't wait for sections to dry. I needed to leave your understanding of me up to the universe, and I would have to be more patient about finding a good conclusion to this story. Part 3. Text Messaging I had zero concerns about discussing this book with my mom. I literally had nothing to lose, and while reaching out to her felt like picking at an old scab, I was left with the same relationship I had with her for the past several years. I was anxious about talking with you, but I also felt like I had nothing to lose. There has never been any doubt of whether or not you loved me, and there was never any limit to your support of me. Talking with you about all of this represented an opportunity to gain understanding, and in the worst-case scenario, I knew you'd always love me and support me regardless. Again, I was disappointed with how it ended up going down, but I knew it couldn't damage our strong relationship. There was only one other person I needed to talk to, and I intentionally saved it for last, knowing I had nothing to gain and would likely walk away feeling triggered and on edge. Nevertheless, I knew I had to have that conversation with my brother. I had been dreading it for weeks, but as the book was nearing its end, I knew I had to talk with him. If he wasn't interested, I had to warn him at least that I had written many critical things about him and our relationship. Unlike my conversation with you, I wasn't expecting any understanding or support. I didn't want to talk to him in person or on the phone. I knew I would need to choose my words wisely, and I didn't want to get triggered and say something I didn't mean. Besides, he could ignore my calls but I knew my texts would go through. In hindsight, doing it by text message was likely the worst of the options, but my plan wasn't to tell him everything in the book, I would only explain what I had done and why. To warm him to the idea that I had written the book, I decided to lead with my recent decision to seek professional therapy. While I had been researching on my own, talking with my wife, and doing shadow work for the past four years, I thought he would take the professional component of my journey more seriously. I also wondered if he had ever been to therapy. If he had started his own treatment, maybe he would understand what I was doing. He wouldn't think of this as strictly being critical of him, but as an exploration of the factors that led to me being the person I am today. I texted him in the morning and got straight to the point. Have you ever been to therapy? Nope. You? Yeah, just started. How is it? Something I'm going to do my best to describe is how even the slightest little things can cause a trigger to activate. I am fully conscious of these triggers and capable of free thought, but a history of interactions with my brother has trained my brain to squeeze the shit out of the glands in my head that produce a sloppy soup of emotions I cannot control. I know, for example, that I am reading into him saying, how is it, with a period instead of a question mark. The rational side of me knows that it's a grammatical error, But the glands that were squeezed made me read the lack of a question mark as if it were a statement that merely fits the context of the conversation and wasn't an actual question that he would like me to answer. This barely registered on a trigger scale from 1 to 10, but the needle did bounce slightly. It's been good, surprisingly. How many sessions? The needle on the trigger scale jumped up to 2. Again, the rational side of me knows he may have asked that question because I said I had, just started, therapy but I immediately felt the need to justify the work I had been doing. If the number of sessions was low, which it was, he would dismiss everything I felt. He would only respect what I had learned from this experience if the number of sessions approached what he felt was enough. I've been doing shadow work for four years, will be starting regression therapy soon. Now that the trigger scale was sitting at a two, the self-doubt and uneasiness began clouding judgment. I expected him to think it was stupid and a waste of time. The rational side of me tried to help by pointing out that maybe he just hadn't read the text yet, but the longer I waited, the worse it got. I decided to tell him I had also been looking into past life therapy. The craziness of exploring one's past lives helps lighten the mood and brings a bit of intrigue to the conversation. Also had one past life reading that was kind of bonkers. I waited 20 minutes for a reply, and now I was swimming in the anxiety of losing the conversation. This unreasonableness is me at a trigger scale of only 2, so you can imagine how I am at a 10. My past life reading was interesting but provided no information that helped me with my present struggles, and it had nothing to do with what I wanted to talk about with my brother. Deciding to do this via text meant I had agreed to wait for responses. Still, my anxiety and the trigger scale reading were working against me, so I felt the need to pull the conversation back in the direction I intended it to go. Working on myself has made me a better husband and father, but it has also given me the tools to be more prepared for when my kids go through anything similar. Another excruciating ten minutes passed before he finally replied. Nice. Past life? Yeah, you know, the one I had before this one. Apparently. It was also not the only one I had, but likely the most recent. I wasn't getting a response, and my anxiety was now through the roof. I didn't want to talk about my past lives, I wanted to talk about this one. I kept adding, apparently, after each text, like a disclaimer. If he thought it was stupid, I could distance myself from it like it wasn't my own belief. I could pretend that I was just playing around. I decided to try explaining why I had brought it up and relate it to what I was doing with the book. Life is an opportunity to learn things you can't learn in the next dimension. We just keep coming back, over and over again, until we learn all that we need to before ascending to the next plane. Apparently. Nothing, there was no response. I was now digging myself deeper and further away from the intended conversation. I knew his complaints about Christianity and the fear-based teaching of most religions, maybe I could catch his attention with what I find is the most fascinating aspect of having multiple lives, a belief in the eternal pursuit of learning that has guided my journey through this book. No eternal damnation, just lessons to be learned, you either do or you don't, you progress or you don't, just spirits having a human experience together. Two hours passed without a response to my grand revelations. Interestingly, the trigger scale jumped to a 5, all on its own. So far, he hadn't said much of anything in the conversation. I was operating on a lifetime of experience that was painting every punctuation and each perceived slight. I know that a possibility exists where he hadn't left me on read. He just hadn't had the opportunity to reply. As I waited, I thought of the times he had rolled his eyes as I explained something I found interesting. I pictured the times he would get up and walk away while I was talking on our family Zoom nights. I felt relatively confident that the silence I was now getting was based on his disinterest in what I was saying. What made it worse was that I had deviated so far away from what I wanted to say in an effort to lighten the mood and catch his interest. He was now ignoring me, and I wasn't even saying what I wanted to say. It was time to get it over with and rip the band-aid off. Part 4. Advance Through the Program Our conversation continued via text messaging. I was ready to tell him everything I needed to say, and it didn't matter if he ignored me again. If he wasn't curious about what I had written, then he forfeits the right to critique what I have to say. You can lead a horse to your book, but you can't make him read it. Shadow work consists of thinking back on times in your life when you needed support but didn't get it or in the way you wanted it. Imagine going back, knowing what you know now, what would you have done or said to your younger self? Those critical moments shape our fears, self-doubt, shame, regrets, etc. By reliving them and acknowledging them, you can heal past wounds and move on. There are a lot of things that came up about our relationship that I've asked to talk with you about in the past, but it never worked out. I kept going anyway and I compiled it all into a book. It's my journey through addiction to drugs and alcohol and how I overcame them both, and what I learned from it. I waited another 15 minutes for a reply, now swimming in the chaos of admitting the book partially airing my confessions, and being left to sit in the swarm of anxiety and depressive thoughts. Since I had done much of the work alone, I assumed he'd never respect it, so I would have to justify my work's validity by bringing in a professional source. I have a friend that is a licensed family therapist who is reading the book and discussing it with me. Another hour passed with no reply, and I was ready to give up when he finally replied. I look forward to talking about it once you've advanced further through your therapy. The needle on my trigger scale almost broke as it slammed into the tenth mark. Not only had he completely glossed over everything I had said, but he was now dismissing it all. He was deferring the conversation to another time when I had advanced further through my therapy. I was well aware of how his sliding scales worked, and I knew that once I had advanced, I would always need a little more work before he would be willing to talk. Ha ha, but not until then. Shouldn't you advance to the program to a more complete understanding and then seek out conversations? Growth is a lifelong process and there should be many conversations that also assumes that I'm in therapy because of things I don't understand or that I'm in therapy because I have a problem. I waited for 10 more minutes. My anxiety was too high to wait for a reply. I overcame my addiction over 10 years ago and have since been working toward learning better coping mechanisms and skills reading, talking to professionals, and doing my own writing to explore triggers. I understand very well how things mom did have manifested themselves into my insecurities. I'm now great at my job, a good husband, and a kick-ass dad. Therapy isn't a sign of weakness, but of strength and a willingness to improve. I've come a long way in the program. I thought relating any of this to his impact on me would only put him on the defensive. Linking it to our shared experience with our mom might open the door to him being more willing to accept the conversation I wanted to have. My triggers showed as I tried to defend my journey through therapy. My only regret was letting my pettiness also show by throwing the vagueness of some unknown program back at him. I waited for 30 minutes for another response before I decided I would say my piece and move on. It was time to do what I had come here to do. I've looked up to you my entire life, but you're always so critical of me or my past. Lots of mean teasing that I internalize and feel bad about. It's a trigger for me. I don't need your praise, but I do want you to know that your opinion of me matters a great deal, and when you put me down, even in the slightest way, it really affects me. Please be conscious of that when we're together. He replied immediately. When do I put you down? You mean when 95% of our time together, you're calling me ugly, make fun of my walk? tell me no one likes me because of my personality? You and I have two very different views of things. This came as a welcome surprise to me. I wished it was a breakthrough and not a simple deflection. Regardless, I learned a great deal from his response. I hope I've not represented myself as some innocent victim being mistreated by his family as I blindly stumble, unguided through life. In actuality, I've attempted to show how flawed I am and how I've spent a lifetime coping poorly with things. When my brother is critical of others, I've seen some people shy away and curl like a pill bug while others dismiss him outright. On the other hand, I've been known to fight back with him. The longer it has gone on, and the angrier I get with him, the more I fight on behalf of those who allow him to go unchecked at their own peril. When he makes fun of our stepbrother. I'll reply with how that seems to be particularly harsh criticism from someone who looks exactly like Steve Buscemi. We have all been hard on each other for so long that the wounds are now deep and intertwined. It has become too hard to establish who started it or does it more. In the end, none of that even matters anyway. From my perspective, he doesn't like how I treat him after he mistreats me. If he truly feels the same about me, I'm open to ending that cycle and moving on without spending any time establishing who needs to say sorry. The problem isn't that we are talking about it now, it's that we haven't talked about it yet. None of this would be nearly as difficult to discuss if we had talked about it on day one, in the moment, a new process that I hope we can adopt moving forward. In my defense, I know he only said this out of evasiveness. I may be willing to change my behavior, and I'm happy to discuss any wrongs I have committed, but I know he was deflecting because he didn't want to acknowledge what I said. I'm sure we do have a different view of things if we don't talk about it. That's why you don't wait to have those conversations. I do retaliate and try to hang in there. I realized I do it to my wife, too. Just like I see you do it to Renee. Last time I talked to you, you said she looked like the drummer from Twisted Sister when she tries to look nice. When I mean tease my wife, she said, hey, stop that. I don't like it. And I thought, wow, I never considered just asking you to stop. When we were vacationing in the bay, you called Renee a stupid bitch in front of the kids because she had to run back into the house to grab something when we were leaving. I think sometimes you're teasing, but then sometimes it goes way too far. I fought fire with fire. I don't want to anymore. I don't like doing it and don't like hearing it. If you feel I'm bad to you, I'm sorry."